Good morning and welcome to this week's public affairs program. I'm Amy Adams. This week, Derek Moore talks about the Corvette Museum in Bowling Green. A few of the folks from Rotary here uh, asked if someone from the museum could come up and talk a little bit about what we do over at the Corvette Museum. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, when something is so close to our own backyard, we don't always go see it. Uh, it was very common at Henry Ford Museum that local people in Dearborn and Detroit area would always say, oh, you know, I should really get there. Uh, and so, you know, the folks I talked to here said, you know, come over and, and tell us a little bit about what, what we could see at the museum and, uh, you know, what basically what there is to do um, with the museum and, and the Bowling Green area. And I've already heard from a, a number of folks here um, that, you know, they're very familiar with the motorsports park, um, have come over to the museum. And so I just want to do a quick run through and, and tell you guys a little bit about what um, what is at the museum and, and some of the things that people forget that we do at the museum. So as long as I can learn how to use this clicker, there we go. Uh, so obviously the National Corvette Museum exists to uh, basically keep the history of Corvette alive, past, present, and future. So we talk about all the way back to actually pre-Corvette history. Because as I always say, you, you can't just imagine that Corvette just sprung up out of nowhere. It wasn't like Harley Earl walked in one day and said, we should build a car and we should call it Corvette. There's a lot more story to it than that. Sports cars have been around for a long time, and there have been a lot of influences to Corvette. So one of the first things we do in our exhibits, in our, our galleries, in the museum, is introduce people to the backstory of Corvette and how it truly got its beginnings. And the cutaway Corvette you see in the picture here is actually um, a cutaway 1953 Corvette built on top of the oldest surviving chassis of a Corvette. It is actually 1953 Corvette chassis number three. Uh, it is the oldest surviving chassis. The body actually is on a different car now. Um, so there are basically two, the two parts of number three still exist, but were actually separated back in 1953 by General Motors. Um, so this is the first thing people see, and they, they get to learn a little bit about what it took to develop and engineer this car back in 1953. But directly behind this car are other stories, because we have to remember that Corvette, as I said, didn't just come out of anywhere. Uh, it was influenced by European sports cars, the post-World War II American sports cars that were starting to crop up, as well as early fiberglass technology. So believe it or not, in the Corvette Museum, you will see non-Corvettes, which is often a shock to many people. I know there's a laser, there we go. So if you walk beyond that 1953 Corvette cutaway, you'll see an MGTC, a Crosley Hotshot Supersport, and this, which is called the Stout Y46. The reason these cars are there is because without European sports cars, American soldiers who went over to fight World War II wouldn't have been introduced to what a European sports car was. They wouldn't have imported them back to the US and there wouldn't have been an influence on the American auto industry to create an American sports car. The Crosley Hotshot, this was actually built up in Cincinnati, Ohio and is considered America's first true sports car. If anyone knows what a Crosley Hotshot is, you probably wouldn't think that. It's a very small car, almost micro car-ish, if you will. Uh, but it was the first American car to actually have what we would call a mid front engine setup. So the engine in this car actually sits behind the front axle 
and it could obtain speeds over 70 miles an hour in the late 1940s. Um, very uncommon in American cars of this nature that only had two seats and were very small and lightweight. And the Stout Y46 is the world's first fiberglass car. This is the first car ever built from the new modern fiberglass technology that had been developed. And this car was actually built in 1946. And when Corvette, when General Motors and Chevrolet were looking to build Corvette, Owens Corning Fiberglass actually told them, you should really go down to the Detroit Historical Museum and check out a car we built for Bill Stout back in 1946, because it's made out of fiberglass. So really, we want to introduce our guests to the fact that it took a lot of things coming together, a lot of stories coming together to create Corvette and make it what it became, America's sports car, and today, the mid-engine Corvette. So as you continue through the museum, we then get into some of the unique stories in Corvette's history. And if anyone you know, here pays attention to news coming out of the museum, uh, back in 2019, we had a 1954 Corvette donated called the Entombed Corvette. And this is a 1954 Corvette that in 1958 was entombed in a grocery store in New Brunswick, Maine. Because the gentleman's wife finally admitted to him that she hated riding in the car. And rather than sell it, he decided, you know, he owned a chain of grocery stores. He took it down to one of the new ones he was having built and basically told the construction workers, go ahead and park this car in there and build a brick tomb around it. And so it existed there until 1986 um, when the grocery store and land was sold off. And the car actually passed on to this gentleman's daughter. His name's Richard Sampson. His daughter then took the car out of the tomb moved it to her house in Daytona Beach, Florida, removed the sliding glass door from her living room, put it in her living room and put the sliding glass door back in place for another 10 years until in 1996, she actually sold it to private collectors. Um, it traded through about three private collectors hands and then the most recent owners donated it to the museum. But the significance of this car, the story is great. And we love telling these unique stories and, and in some ways oddball stories. But this is one of the probably best preserved 1954 Corvettes that are still in existence, and there's a lot to learn from it. Um, there's actually inspection marks on this car that no one ever knew existed um, until we had the chance to look at the car close and research it. But it even still sits to this day on the original 1954 tires that came on it from the factory in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. So a great car to have in the collection. And then just beyond that, as we progress through the history of Corvette, you come across something that most people will say extremely odd things about. A 1955 Ford Thunderbird. Why in the world would a 1955 Ford Thunderbird be in the National Corvette Museum? Well, one of the things you have to remember, and one of the things that always drives the auto industry is competition. Whether that's competition from Ford Motor Company building a car to try to outsell you, or competition on the track with you know mid-engine sports cars going at it at the 24 Hours of Le Mans this past weekend. Um, it's, it's always about competition and making things better. So the fact that the 1954 Thunderbird is in the museum is a shock, but we have to remember that without the 1955 Ford Thunderbird, Corvette would not exist today. In 1954 and 1955, General Motors was actually going to kill Corvette from the lineup. They were going to end the production of the car 
and no longer produce it until rumor got out that this car was coming out. And it was going to have a V8 in it. It was going to have a Ford V8. It was going to be a two-seat car, never called a sports car, personal luxury car. But what it allowed was Zora Arcus Duntoff, some of you may recognize that name, and a gentleman named Ed Cole to put the new small block Chevy engine into the Corvette and make it the sports car it truly needed to be in 1955. They went head to head then with the Thunderbird, but wouldn't outsell Thunderbird until 1957. Um, and then that's when in 1958, Ford Thunderbird added a back seat and became a family car and let Corvette have its place as America's sports car. So continuing through the museum, we also do diorama exhibits, what, what we would refer to in the museum world as diorama exhibits. So you actually see a period 1950s mobile gas station. You see a period 1960s Chevrolet um, dealership where we can talk about how cars how Corvette was sold to the general public. And just across from that, this marriage, uh, what we would call the marriage uh, moment of the assembly line in St. Louis, uh, Missouri. Now Corvette's unique. It has only been built in three locations in its entire lifetime. 1953, it was built in Flint, Michigan for one year, 300 cars hand assembled. Uh, in 1954, it moved to St. Louis, Missouri. And then in 1981, it moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky. And those are the only places Corvette has ever been assembled um, in the world. So to this day, Bowling Green, Kentucky is the only place Corvette is built, produced, and you know, sent out to the world at large. So as we move through, we get into, again, we want to tell varying stories through Corvette's history. And we recently opened what we call the E. Pierce Marshall Memorial Performance Gallery. And this is actually a highly interactive gallery. There's actually 11 kiosks that are interactive, 11 different Corvettes from Corvettes racing history, from production cars that came out of the factory as race cars to privateer racing, which would be much like what some of the gentlemen here have been talking about. You know, they bought up a Corvette, turned it into a race car and went out and raced and won races. Um, and we go over the history of it from, as I say, the earliest Corvette race car, the privateers that ran in the 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up. And then really one of the, the big things we talk about is the triumphant return during the fifth generation of Corvette to true factory-backed racing where they were going to go beat the snot out of everybody at Le Mans again was the goal. And uh, one of the stories we love to tell is of this car right here. And you see the C5R race car, good wrench. Anybody recognize that number three? Yes, heads are nodding. Number three, this car is often on loan to the museum. This is the car Dale Earnhardt, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Andy Pilgrim, and Kelly Collins drove at Daytona. And it was Dale Earnhardt's venture into uh, basically sports car racing, road racing. And unfortunately, it was not long after this that Dale was uh, in a, his terrible wreck. Um, but this car gets a lot of attention at the museum. And you know, we want to tell those stories, as I say, that, that dive into not only Corvette as a car, but also those stories that revolve around society and culture and people that have participated in Corvette's history, even down to this beautiful trophy over here that you see this was actually won by a woman named Betty Skelton. 
I don't know if anybody recognizes that name, but Betty Skelton was a legendary race car driver and uh, actually trained with the Mercury 7 back in the day. She was actually nicknamed Mercury 7 and a half. Um, one of the, the first woman to ever have uh, astronaut training. But she actually won, set a speed record at Daytona Beach, and this is actually the trophy she won. Um, we also talk about Lynn St. James, who used to drive Corvette. So bringing the, the, the woman, the female part of the story into this. And we also have a car on exhibit that's from one of the Gran Turismo games, Gran Turismo 6, um, to help get the younger generation interested in Corvette history. And uh, a number of times I've been out in the gallery and seen about a 12-year-old kid come around the corner and scream, oh my God, mom, it's the car I drove in the game, um, which is always kind of fun because you see that interaction suddenly with the younger generation. And then we can't not talk about a certain mid-engine car that recently was introduced. So the next gallery you walk into at the museum uh, is our design gallery, design and engineering. And right now we're actually running an exhibit called The Vision Realized, which was put together with General Motors. And uh, it's actually kind of a cooperative effort to have this exhibit in place. And it is a look at the long journey um, to realize Zora Arcus Duntov's dream of a mid-engine Corvette. It started back in 1959 when Zora built this car, Serve One, the Chevrolet Engineering Research Vehicle Number One, uh, which was a mid-engine car, much more like an Indy car um, look to it. But it was really to understand the, uh, you know, basically engineering of doing a mid-engine car and getting it figured out. And through the years, you see this timeline here they were constantly looking at how to turn the Corvette into a mid-engine sports car. They knew that was the way they wanted to go with Corvette and just how would they get there and what would it take. And so we have a number of those mid-engine concept cars on loan from General Motors. Um, we also have our own that we own, which is the two-rotor Corvette from 1973 on exhibit. Taking a look at the stories of how GM approached getting to a mid-engine. Even though it took so long, there was a lot of lessons to be learned along the way. And as we say, eventually we know they came to the 2020 mid-engine Corvette, a major change, but truly Zora's vision finally realized. Um, and it is an incredible car that has actually an incredible legacy behind it. And, and when you see the cars that have led up to it, you can see the direct influences of those cars on the 2020 mid-engine Corvette, including um, a, a very famous mid-engine Corvette known as the Corvette Indy done in the 1980s um, by Tom Peters and the engineering team. And the, those two cars actually sit almost directly across from each other in the exhibit. And even though the Indy is quite round and the new C8 is, has some sharp lines to it, you see the direct influences from those later you know, 80s, 90s era mid-engines into what we have today. We are the only museum in the world where you can still to this day see one of the famed camouflage C8 prototype Corvettes. This is a Corvette that was a powertrain development Corvette and uh, ran at the Milford Proving Grounds up in Michigan and was one of the key cars in developing the engine and the platform of the C8 and making sure that it was going to be viable and quality to be out in production and on the roads um, for the Corvette lovers and owners um, to have. 
And then we also have what we would call a rotating exhibit space or a flexible exhibit space. This is where we do year-long exhibits um, in some fashion, often tied to Corvette history, but not always Corvette directly related. And currently we're running an exhibit entitled Corvette Powered, and there's not a single Corvette in the exhibit. But what we have are a number of vehicles that have been powered by Corvette uh, small block V8s over the years. So in, uh, how many people do recognize Zora Arcus Duntov's name? Are there some folks that recognize Zora's name? Okay. Um, Zora was probably the greatest engineer of Corvette's history. Um, Zora is the man that truly turned it into what it is today. There's a gentleman in Italy named Giotto Bizzarini and he is basically the Duntoff of Italy. And he used Corvette engines in numerous cars that he worked for. Bizzarini is the man who created the Ferrari 250 GTO for Ferrari, one of the most incredible supercars there probably ever has been. Um, but he created his own company called Bizzarini and used Chevrolet small block engines. He also worked for a company called ESO and used Chevrolet engines for them. Um, and all of these cars have been powered by Corvette engines because the small block Chevy is almost unbeatable um, for what it is capable of. Bizzarini was famous for saying, you know, the high, en high revving engines of Italy, the Lamborghini and Ferrari engines that you hear run, you know, revolutions up, the RPMs up here, they're great in a straight line. But when you get them into a turn and try to get out of the turn, they don't do anything. But a car and an engine with a lot of torque at the low end at slow speeds can get out of a turn and beat those Italian cars. And that's exactly why he used the small block Chevy engine, because it could do that. And it could defeat the cars that he so famously had engineered, like the 250 GTO and the Lamborghini Miura. He knew how to defeat them. And that's exactly what he did at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1965 with his very own Bizzarini race car running a Corvette engine. So that is, that's kind of the, the rundown of Corvette power. So that's kind of a quick walk through the museum. But as I said, I wanted to also talk about some of the other opportunities that people often forget that we have at the museum and on the greater complex and grounds. So some of the other things we do, and I think we do well, are uh, obviously we have the Corvette store, uh, which if you're a Corvette fan, we have items in the store that you cannot get anywhere else. Um, we have a special license with General Motors that we get specific merchandise that no one else gets. So we have a lot of our Corvette owners and Corvette fans that come in just specifically to shop at the store. But the other cool thing is if you see the, the this is obviously from the C7 generation, but you see a C8 here pulling out on this same kind of what we call Corvette Boulevard, we actually do a program called R8C. And it's in partnership with General Motors and Chevrolet. And if you're going to buy a new C8 Corvette, Carrie, because, you know, Lotus is, um, you can actually pick an option called R8C and you can actually have your Corvette delivered at the museum. Um, there are other companies that do this. They do it a little differently. Actually, Porsche has a, an option to do this. BMW does something similar. But Corvette kind of takes it to a whole nother level. We actually, um, the cars come directly from the plant to the museum. We have a PDI, pre-delivery inspection department. And then you get a VIP day at the museum 
where you actually take ownership of your car. So you're actually delivered your car at the museum on our boulevard. And uh, you, know, you get a VIP tour of the museum. You get to go over to the track, do some stuff at the track. And uh, when plant tours are open, they're not open right now, uh, you get a tour of the plant where your car was built. And oftentimes, if you set it up right, you can actually come in early and actually see your car start up for the first time and leave the assembly line. So there are some cool options within that R8C package that you can get. But then, of course, you get the joy of you know getting in your car and having all of the staff come out and clap for you as you leave with your new Corvette. Um, a lot of smiles on people's faces as they do that. And then we also have our library and archives um, where we store a lot of archival history on Corvette, but we also store all of the build sheets of the Bowling Green built Corvette. So if you own a Corvette that was built in Bowling Green, even all the way back to the early 1980s, we actually have all of the records for that car. And you can actually come to the museum, pull that record, or you can order it online by phone and actually learn exactly how your car was built. So if you're trying to restore, say, a 1982 Corvette, you can actually call up the museum, get the build sheet, and you'll know the exact options that were on that car and how to restore it correctly uh, so that it is the car it was when it came off the assembly line. And then we also do have our restaurant option, the Stingray Grill, which just actually opened up yesterday at the ribbon cutting. Um, it's an all-new restaurant. Um, and has a full bar, so if you're there and need a drink, you can grab one. Uh, but great food, we have a new chef, and um, it's actually getting great reviews and uh, great you know, comments from visitors while they're there. And then, as mentioned, across the street, we have probably one of the coolest things any museum could have, a full motorsports park. A 3.1 mile road course, uh, we have a fleet of C8 Corvettes that you can actually come rent a C8 Corvette, mid-engine Corvette, and actually drive it on track, um, as we say, above highway speeds. That's, that's what we say. Uh, <laughs> and you can actually get the feel of what a C8 Corvette is capable of doing. We also have some other options because we actually have professional race car drivers that work at our track. Um, and beyond that, even higher level, we have a pro driver named Andy Pilgrim. Uh, you may remember that name from a little earlier. Andy was a Corvette race car driver and Cadillac race car driver for the factory uh, back during the C5 era. And uh, Andy has been known to take people out for hot laps on our track and scare the daylights out of them. Uh, he is an incredible driver, uh, someone that can win the type of races and, and run at Le Mans like he did. Uh, it's incredible to have that um, you know knowledge at our track to be able to not only take people out and show them what vehicles are capable of, but also he does driver instruction. He'll do one-on-one -on -one instruction with people um, to help them become better race car drivers. Um, it is an extremely technical track for, I know a few people here that I was talking to earlier are kind of, you know, um, gentlemen racers, let's call it. You know, you're kind of go out and have some fun with the different racing clubs. And uh, for those that have run on the track, you know it's a, a very technical track, a lot of challenging turns, um, developed off some of the best tracks around the world. Uh, so it is, it is a fun track to be on, whether you're a novice driver or a professional driver. It is incredibly fun, and our team there um, will make sure you have fun while you're there. 
Uh, we also offer go-kart racing, autocrossing, a lot of different things over at the track. If you're into any type of racing, you'll probably find something there. Um, no demolition derby, though. We haven't started that up. And then the big news, if anyone has seen, um, recently we announced that we are going to be doing an expansion. Um, we're adding about 25,000 square feet of exhibit space to the museum. Uh, it will be built off the side of the museum because with every generation and every year of Corvette that comes out new and has new history and new innovations, we have less and less room to tell the story. We still have about the same square footage of exhibit space as we had when we opened in 1994. We only added about 5,000 square feet of exhibit space in 2008. So this will be a huge change for the museum, a, a huge opportunity for the museum to tell more of the story of Corvette's history and competition and innovation through the years. So if you have not been to the museum, I highly encourage you to come over. It is not that far away. I drove from my house, which is only about a half hour. It took me about two hours to get here. So a great day trip with the family. Does anyone have any questions? Because I, I am here and I will happily answer questions. Yes. So how do you know there are no more um, sinkholes? <laughs> I know, that's a, I know that's a kind of a nightmare spot for you, but um, just to speak to those two things, that'd be great. Yeah, not a problem. So yeah, uh, on the first point, um, the, the new C8 Corvette, the mid-engine 2020, you know, 2021 Corvette, um, for the last probably six months, I think all but one of those months, has been the fastest selling car um, in America. And those who order their Corvette have been kind of, you know, as she said, you know, 720 something in line. And as they build the Corvettes, they're finding they can't keep up. You know, I mean, and Corvette has always been a fairly limited production car. Um, you know, they try to produce as many as they can for the orders they get. And also just for those that want to buy one. Um, and it's, it's been an incredible response to the new version of the Corvette. And yes, people have ordered their Corvette and basically Chevrolet has come back and said, we're not going to be able to build your 2021, you're going to get a 2022. Uh, just because of the demand for these cars. Uh, I mean, there are dealerships actually going back to people that they sold C8 Corvettes to in 2020 saying, if you want, we would buy your car back because there's so much demand for it that we could sell it to someone else. Uh, so it is an incredible car, getting an incredible, incredible amount of attention. And I think one of the cool things, too, is that you know, GM, of course, was aiming for younger generations, as all of us are trying to do. You know, we want the younger generations to come up in, you know, be interested in museums, be interested in cars, be interested in different things. And you know, that was a big goal for GM with this car, and it's done it. Because I will tell you, I will walk out on the boulevard to look at the cars that are being delivered, and it will range from folks that have owned Corvettes for the last 30 years and they're getting their new one, to a 25-year-old kid buying their first Corvette, and it's a C8. And they, you know, actually one, one younger, uh, I'd probably put them late 30s, early 40s, couple were in there the other day said, well, normally we buy Porsche, but uh, yeah, this is a cool car. 
Um, so it's doing what, what General Motors wants, that competition with Porsche, competition with Ferrari, all those, and getting the younger generations in. And as for the sinkhole question, um, there's actually a lot of testing that has come about now <laughs> that didn't exist in 1994. And uh, so we actually have had a number of uh, core drillings done as well as um, electro-resistivity testing where they actually basically shoot electricity underground and based on the resistance that that electricity finds, they can tell what's underground. Um, so that's how we know that where caves do exist and don't exist on the property now. So yeah, we are positive that we will not be building over a cave. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I mean, I think if you look back at automotive history in general, uh, it speaks to the capabilities of, I guess, what we, we deem the Midwest. Uh, you know, Detroit, of course, being a hotbed of automotive uh, production some, from very early on all the way up. Cleveland, Ohio was huge in the turn of the century, uh, as well as Indiana with places like Auburn and Indianapolis being major centers of early automotive production. And even Louisville and Lexington having automotive production very early on in automotive history. Uh, it's A lot of it was due back then to the natural resources of the area, uh, the forests, the uh, mining capabilities in the area, as well as the waterways that were able to bring raw materials that might not be found in the area into the area and then of course the railroad as well and what that led to was in you know really the early 1900s was the midwest becoming really the core of automotive production in the united states and that has been held on to by the midwest and you know being able to have the factories in you know cr critical areas for transportation uh, with railroads and waterways in the Midwest where really if you ever look at a railroad map or a waterway map, this area of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky is really a hub of transportation, of really all forms of transportation. So it makes it very easy for you know any type of industry, but especially the automotive industry, to get those products out to the rest of the country and the rest of the world but in reverse, bring all of those necessary materials into this part of the country that they might not be able to get their hands on. Um, so I think it, it, it's kind of just a, a almost a, a, a historical and a, a automotive lineage uh, situation where this is just kind of familiar for this area and it's, it's what worked well in the beginning and why change that. Um, hopefully that answers the question well enough. I mean, I really think it's it's part of part of the roots of the Midwest. Thanks for joining us for this week's public affairs program. From all of us from Midwest Communications in Evansville, Indiana, have a great week.